Hi everyone, welcome back to Coin Bundle Conversations in partnership with Tuesday Capital, where we invite some of the leading entrepreneurs and investors in the blockchain space to learn about their story and their investment strategy so that you can learn from their experience as well. Uh, today, I'm really excited to invite my friend Atif, who's the CEO and co-founder of Block.io and one of the people who I would call the OGs in the blockchain space. So Atif, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so Atif, uh, to start with, want to learn a little bit more about your journey. So you uh, started your first company very soon after you graduated from college, uh, when you were very young. So tell us about that. How did you decide to start your company instead of getting a job like everyone else? And what was the company? Yeah, so right after undergrad, um, you have, you know, you're cramming for exams and you're like, you know, I'm going to get the grades and you got to memorize everything. And then three years, three days later, you're like, you just forget what it was. Yeah. Um, so that's the phase I was in uh, right after undergrad. Facebook was just coming up. They had just launched their developer platform. So this was around June 7th or June 4th that they launched it. And there was a few apps that were doing um, one or two million monthly active users. Well, they okay. <clears throat> this seems interesting. So what kind of thing would I build? And we were thinking as a very social network centric thing. So it had to be, it couldn't just be a game because everyone plays a game. This is a social network. This is the first time it's happening. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to build, I wanted to build something for it. So I saw two people fighting at a cafeteria over, over who's going to pay for a coffee. I'm like, that's a friendly little squabble. Yeah. How about we take it online? It's a social thing, right? It could yeah. be the uh, friends could pick a side, like she broke my nail or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that became really popular. It became, it was the first text-based fighting game or first fighting game at all on Facebook. And then I sold that in 20, um, in, in 2008, six months after I created it. Wow. And then I realized something, people are not, um, people are, People are not looking for something that's complicated. I mean, it's great for people to build products that, you know, that, that get them excited because there is complexity involved in the product, but the user doesn't care. The average user is unable to find an OK and cancel button yeah. in a lot of cases, even though it's right there, right? Because they're, not, they're looking for visual clues and a developer that's looking for complexity will be like, yeah, everyone can see it, it says okay over yeah. there. Like, yeah, but it's not green. Yeah. So people will, won't click it. Yeah. So, so I, started create, I started thinking about doing something very, very simple. And I created an application called iHeart. It was decorative hearts sent to <coughs> your friends and family on special occasions or just, you know, if you felt like it. And that became the number two application on Facebook behind Farmville. Wow, so you built the number two application on Facebook. That must have right. felt amazing. That, yeah. And I wanted to keep it under the radar, but people found out and ranking sites started listing it and everyone started congratulating me on the fuck. <laughs> because that application was so simple yeah. um, that uh, anyone could do it, really. It yeah. was done in four hours. Wow. So, but that led me to you know, all the stuff that came later on. Complexity doesn't really mean much for the end user if they can't use it. Yeah. And so this app was somewhere where I could, for example, send a heart to my friend as, as a compliment or, or as a gift. 
and right. does that facilitate like Hallmark that? cards for got it yeah. so how did you make money uh, or was ads so ads. there were 30 million monthly active users wow. right um, and uh, it would be about 70 or 80 million monthly impressions and if you put ads on them ad blockers were not really big at this point so display ads work really well um, and that would give you a sizable uh, income for someone who is still in grad school yeah yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So you'd uh, at this point you've had uh, two hits on your hands. Uh, were those the two projects that you launched, or were there also a lot that did not take off like this? Um, so the the total thing that we did on on uh, that I did on Facebook, um, it later on became uh, a study for social networks. The first study. Uh, of, of real applications on social networks yeah. in the academic world. Uh, and that happened because those applications combined had 135 million wow. uh, users that, have, that had used them. So it was a, they were all successful. Yeah. Uh, they were more successful than most startups would yeah. be. Uh, and that's not just, just a fact, I'm not. Yeah, no, it's true. 135 million total users, it's unbelievable. I, if you think about it, Facebook had about 700 million users at this time. Yeah. So um, I would meet people on the street and they wouldn't know who I was because I wouldn't advertise myself. Yeah. But I would ask them about the application. They're like, oh, yeah, I love that application. Yeah. And they would, their eyes would you know, become doggy bowl eyes. Yeah. And, uh, it was a great feeling. Yeah, no, building something that people really want and love, it's, it must be yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so then what happened with iHearts? Did you, uh, you mentioned you, you sold your previous company with iHearts. Did you keep growing it or what happened next? So in about, uh, in around uh, 2010, um, the Facebook developer platform, people started realizing that the platform had a lot of personal information regarding users and ad networks started exploiting that. The U.S. Congress got a hold of it, of that information. It was a company called uh, Rapleaf uh, that was uh, funneling information that they shouldn't have been taking from Facebook, and that caused a lot of headache for Facebook. So they started clamping down on applications, and that's when the developer infrastructure, on site at least at Facebook, uh, started dying out. So I got rid of it. I, I, uh, it turned out to be a fortunate thing that I, I sold it a few months before yeah. this happened. I never saw it coming. Well, that's what happened. I, it was acquired by a company called Six Waves yeah. in Hong Kong. And, um, and then a few months later, Facebook shut it all down. Wow, that's, that's, the, that's generally the problem with platforms. If, you, if, you, if your business relies on uh, another, uh, platform. A, another platform. That platform can do anything it wants. Yeah. So you could wake up the next day and you have nothing. Right. And that's that experience helped me a lot to to build something on um, a platform that no one controls. Right. Right. So so at this point you've sold two companies. Uh, you're still pretty young, and then you say, uh, "Hey, I want to get a PhD." Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, so you could do anything up. in the world and you decided to get a PhD. How did that... So I was already getting a PhD. Okay. Like it's right after undergrad. For people who have not done uh, graduate school, it's, it's, 
about 10% of the work of undergrad. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's, it's super easy to do. Okay. Like you have way too much time on your hands when you're in grad school. So, so I was like, okay, let's do something fun, which mm. was building a Facebook application, interacting with users, figuring out user psychology, figuring yeah. out how to um, get people to think the way you want them to think when they're using the application. Yeah. Um, which was very addictive. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to use that uh, information and anonymize it and use it for, for research purposes. Because no one had done it. No one had yeah. access to this data before. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, so, so I was able to combine two things I love yeah. into my research, which became my, my PhD thesis. That's awesome. So it wasn't, it wasn't that much of okay. know, work. It was just two birds, one stone. Great. So, so you talked about how you firsthand saw, you've built these like amazing products used by millions of people, and then you saw how they could be threatened by uh, a platform having control. And is, that's what got you interested in the blockchain space. Well, that was partially it. The, the second thing um, I saw was, uh, I come from Pakistan. Yeah. And in Pakistan, uh, as soon as as soon as you have some clout, some financial clout, you get a lot of people asking you for you know favors yeah. or money or whatever yeah. because they see that you have money and, and you obviously need help with something. Yeah. And if you don't respond to that, then they take it negatively and they come after you. So. Uh, uh, the the central bank is has been known to do this kind of stuff, seize assets and all that. So I, I saw that happening in the newspapers, and I'm yeah. like, this this. You know, so as soon as I give my money to the bank, at least in Pakistan, uh, I've given up control of my money. Yeah, which is true. And this the the memories of the 2008 financial crash were still very very new. Um, and people don't realize that when they, when they give their money to the bank, the bank says, yeah, you can come back and take it from us later on, yeah. um, and we'll give it to you. And um, that's not always going to be the case. In right. 2008, if the government hadn't come in and, and lent the money to the banks, the yeah. banks would have nothing to give you back because they gambled it away on, on subprime mortgages. Yeah. Uh, so in 2008, the, the, the government saved uh, the, the people this way. Yeah. But had they not done this, the, the insured amount of money per bank was only $250,000, which is FDIC insurance, right? So if you have, imagine having $50 million in yeah. the bank account or, or $5 million in the bank account, anything, you know, a retiree has a million dollars yeah. in the bank account. Yeah. Um, you wake up the next day, financial crisis occurred, uh, the government has said, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and uh, good luck. Yeah. Now you have nothing more than 250K because that's all that's insured. Look, if financial institutions were, were completely safe, you wouldn't need to get them FDIC insured. Right. Like the insurance is there for a reason. Yeah. And the government bailouts did save our butts in the short term, but in the long term, Here's what happened. You printed money and you, you sold government bonds. Someone bought that debt and now you as a citizen, a taxpaying citizen, 
will pay interest on that on that debt yeah. over the next you know a few decades or yeah. more. Um, and you will likely pay more than you would have lost in in real value yeah. in 2008. So so why do that? Why why give your money to someone else to gamble away anyway? Yeah. Um, there are investment banks that you know you have you know you're risking your money when you give your your money to someone else to invest. But most people are not doing that. Most people are just saving their money in the bank account. Yeah. The bank is is just using their money to do whatever they want. Yeah. And that should not be the case. So here comes Bitcoin. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, with the power of math, people are able to control their money for the very first time. That is very, very intriguing for someone with you know, aversion to platforms, um, knowing what could have occurred in 2008, yeah. knowing what does happen in, in countries outside of the U.S. on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, with you know financial asset seizures, Bitcoin is extremely attractive, um, and that's the reason I wanted to look at it further. Because if if this is such a promising tool for yeah. people to control their own wealth, it's going to be around for quite a while. Right. Why wouldn't you build a business on it? Yeah. Right. If you if you're successful, no one can shut you down. Yeah. So. So what's holding you back? And that was the exact way I was thinking. Now, when you start using Bitcoin, you start realizing how complicated it is. Mm. For example, in, in 2012 or 2013, we didn't have that many tools to, to use Bitcoin yeah, as, a, as a consumer. Yeah. Right. Even by Bitcoin, Coinbase was just coming up. They were setting up stalls uh, in, in conferences trying to get the word out. Um, and you couldn't buy Bitcoin you know, other, than, other than through local Bitcoin. Coinbase and Mt. Gox was around at this time. And verification for Mt. Gox was, was one hell of a thing to do. Okay. Um, it was just very, very complicated. As a user, when you wanted to build... Or, or as a developer, when you wanted to build your own tool to make a transaction for Bitcoin, that was like 40 lines of code. You know, signatures and cryptography and ACC, 250p, K1. We, it was just way too complicated. So as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, people don't really care about this. If, if Bitcoin has to gain traction at some point, this has to occur before it. Simplification of the, the protocol, simplification of, of the tools that people use, just take the complexity out of it. And that's the reason I got into it. Because okay. I had already experienced the, the shift from complexity to simplicity and the huge gains that come from yeah. simplifying something that yeah. people want. And it's really amazing because it came out of your own need to, to have control over your own assets. Right. And then you are, and then you, as an entrepreneur, you said this is a great opportunity to extend that to other people as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, so as a as a developer, um, I didn't even know about Stripe at this point. I didn't know much about online processing for payments. Mm. Uh, 
But one thing was very clear with Bitcoin, that this was a very powerful tool that was way too complex for people. Block sizes, transaction IDs, uh, addresses, it just, just a simple address that everyone forwards to each other to make payments yeah. in Bitcoin. It looks so damn complicated to you know, an average internet user. They're going to look at that and they're like, what the, what the hell is this? Yeah. Right? What, am I supposed to send money to this? This is not a bank account number. How am I supposed to send money to this? Now, let's assume you've figured out how to send money to this thing. Now you've got things that are eight decimal places. In your life, you've probably never seen something you know, with that many decimal yeah. places, not even pi. Yeah. We only go to like three yeah. digits for that. Uh, so how would a regular user know what to do? What are exchange rates? They fluctuate. Where does Bitcoin get its value from? All of these are very complex things. Now, I could... So if this, if this is a map of, of, of difficult issues around Bitcoin, at the core is tools that developers need to, to use yeah. to build services that simplify all the edge cases, like all, all, the, all the edge information in this, in this cloud of difficult uh, problems, then you would want to tackle the developer problem first and then other people build stuff that simplifies Bitcoin for users. Block.io was born from that angle. Um, now we wanted to use uh, Block.io's, uh, sorry, Bitcoin's um, uh, multi-signature um, uh, protocol um, or standards and make sure that we don't hold any money or we don't have access right. to any money because then how you know we're not any better than the banks that we wanted yeah. to get away from yeah so how do we do that how do we offer developers a service that is easy to use without taking control of the money bitcoin makes it quite simple in retrospect and that's what block.io does it doesn't take control of your money and it gives you an extremely simple way to interact with your funds and move them out and, and you know, transact with them as you wish and offer services to your users that simplify Bitcoin for the average case. That's great. So you've, uh, so you've built this uh, company and this is very early days in uh, before all of the hype around blockchain. In fact, we have a lot of mutual friends and Pretty much everyone says the first time I heard about uh, Bitcoin was when Atif got excited about it, and I wish I had listened to him back then. So back then you were uh, really early on in the space when you would tell people about this Bitcoin thing as well as Block.io. Yeah. Uh, what type of reactions would you get from people? Um, the hardest thing for people to to get their heads around is where does money get its value from. So they say. Oh, so someone just created, you know, 500, uh, you know, yeah. scarves and said yeah. each one of these scarves is worth a million dollars. Like, why does that scarf have, have that value? Because that one person said it. Well, if that one person doesn't. That. So people had a lot of issues with, with how valuations occur yeah. for Bitcoin. And they saw it as... Um, as a fraudulent way for people to sell things that were created out of thin air. And explaining that to people and, and how Bitcoin, the network, works 
was a very difficult thing. It, it took me about six or seven months just to figure out all these different questions around, around Bitcoin. Like, um, uh, how does public key cryptography make sure that only I own the funds? Yeah. Or how, why is Bitcoin anything any better than, than you know, a network that I would create myself? Or one of the five or six different coins that existed at that point. Ethereum didn't exist at that point. Um, they would think it's a scheme. Yeah. They would think, you know, that it it won't last. Um, it only has value. People believe it has value, and because it fluctuates so much, and because it's associated with gambling and yeah. and um, uh, illegal activities, that it will never gain value. Yeah. Um, people just didn't see how powerful efficiency in an established paradigm can be. Um, take, for example, PayPal when it came up. Um, before this, people had no real way to transact online that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, it, it had to be cash or, or promises or, or cashier's checks and credit cards. And So you have credit cards, why do you need PayPal? Well, you can't your mom can't come up to you and say, hey, here's my uh, merchant account. Why don't you send me $5? I, I need that for you know, whatever groceries. Yeah. You can't do that with a credit card, yeah. but you can do that with PayPal. Yeah. And that's because PayPal is simplifying money transfer between people. Yeah. Um, so that's one layer of efficiency added onto, on top of cash. Um, if you add more efficiency on top of you know, PayPal, yeah. then you have a whole new set of applications that open up. People can incentivize reading of, of emails for, you know, a small, a very small amount of, uh, of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so people that have very limited time to spend on checking emails, they can only focus on the emails that actually pay them for their yeah. time. Like, that's a very... Uh, that's a use case that's still being developed, but that is a use case that would be extremely helpful for a large chunk of people that have very busy days. Yeah. Um, so you open up a lot of these applications that could not have been possible before as soon as you add efficiency to it. Most people don't understand this part. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, when Tesla came up with, with electric cars, yeah. uh, people would mock it saying, I can't even go to the store and back and you know, without charging my battery for 50 um, uh, hours or so. Yeah. Uh, so why is this any good? When the car came out in you know, the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, why is this any better than my horse? My yeah. horse, I have a connection with it. Yeah. With a car, what can I do? Well, the car, as soon as you added efficiency to it, all these remote, access, uh, remote areas were accessible to you yeah. now. So a lot of applications, a lot of, a lot of new businesses uh, were made possible because of the invention of the car. The world became more accessible, but people didn't realize this when they saw you know, a tin can next to a living horse. Yeah. It was like, oh, so it's a, it's a horse that doesn't poop. Yeah. <laughs> they don't see the big picture. Yeah. 
Um, and that's generally the case. It's, it's nothing, nothing against humans. Yeah. We just don't see the, the forest for the trees. No, that's, that's really insightful. And so for Bitcoin, you saw it in those early days when people were still saying, this is the stin can, I love my horse. Where do you think we are right now in the evolution? Uh, there's obviously been a lot of hype over the last one year. You've seen many cycles. Do yeah. you think, uh, and you're obviously building a company that supports mass adoption and tools as well. Right. So where do you think we are in the evolution of, of, of this space? So I have, I have two services. One is Blocked.io, which, which focuses on, on developers, yeah. giving developers the right tools to build um, products on top of uh, Bitcoin themselves. And the second one is consumer focus that gets people to use Bitcoin more hmm. um, by giving them an easy way to... It's, it's a platform for people to sell and trade virtual in-game items on Steam. That's great. So how does it work? Uh, this is called Bitskins. This is called Bitskins. So if I'm a user and I want to, if I have a virtual sword on Steam, how do I use Bitskins? So you come up to Bitskins and say, hey, I think uh, you know, someone might find this, this sword valuable. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to sell it for $5. And uh, it shows up on, on Bitskins when someone browses it. And people are like, yeah, I like the sword. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was worth uh, $6. For $5, that's a good deal. I'm going to buy it. Now, the seller gets $5 you know, with a small fee deducted from it. And um, they're like, I want to cash out. And we give them PayPal and we say, it'll be a 2% fee. Yeah. And we give them Bitcoin and we say, there'll be no fee. Right? Um, then people are like, what is Bitcoin? Yeah. Like, why is there no fee on this? And then when they start looking at it, they're like, oh, so I can control my own money. And for now, it says, you know, it can either go up or go down. Um, so it could be a good investment opportunity. Yeah. Um, and if I need to spend it, I can just spend it without getting permission from someone else. This is very strange to someone who has used PayPal all their lives. These are 15 or 16 year old gamers. Yeah. Um, so, so that's Bitskins. Now, what we're seeing as the biggest hurdle for Bitcoin is the volatility in prices. It's great when the price is going up because mm. everyone is like, I'm going to cash out $5 yeah. and then tomorrow when I wake up, it's going to be $6. Yeah. That's great. That's a great feeling. But the reverse is also true. Yeah. Um, if you cash out $6 today and you wake up tomorrow, it's $5, you don't feel so good about Bitcoin. Um, so volatility is a major issue and we, I personally expected Bitcoin to lower its volatility as it, as it goes up in value, mm. um, but that has not happened and that will most likely not happen until it becomes the dominant form of currency because right now traders are, they either move one way or the other. Like they move on mass um, to either drive the price up or on mass to drive the price down. And um, a consumer that doesn't trade is stuck in the middle at the whims of these traders. Right. Now, if more people transact in Bitcoin, then stability starts to creep in. Right. Um, so volatility is the, is the biggest hurdle. And it needs to be, well, it will eventually sort itself out. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, so with Bitskins, it's amazing because there's all these people who are playing video games and earning these virtual goods, yeah. and then you're giving them, in many cases, their first exposure to Bitcoin when they want to make money from these goods. Right. So, so in some ways, you're expanding the ecosystem of people who are involved in this space through both of your companies. Yeah. Um, so Bitskins was the, the first uh, company to introduce Bitcoin to a huge gaming market. Right. Um, the Steam platform uh, trading of goods is, you know, I, it's in excess of a billion dollars a month um, in trading. So Biskins was the one to expose them to, to Bitcoin. And we happened to do it at a good time when, when Bitcoin's price was going up, so everyone got excited about it. Yeah. And it hit its peak in... Um, um, in January of this year, yeah. when the price people expected it to bounce back up to 20k and plus, yeah. um, so the what we've seen is people have not driven away, have not been driven away from okay. that even now, uh, even after an 80 percent decline, yeah. people still want to use it. They're just testing the waters. They're holding on to the cash at Bitskins. Yeah. Uh, but they're waiting for the right time to jump back in. Okay. Like they have not given up on it yeah. because they know the power. Gamers, they, these are very, these are a lot more adept at tech than most online users would yeah. be. So they, this is a perfect match for for uh, gamers yeah. um, an online currency that they can control, which is somewhat complex, but uh, could give them huge returns uh, later on. Um, and it's just so easy to use. If you try to use PayPal and you come up to us and say, hey, I have $1,000, I'll, I'll give you PayPal money for it. We're like, we have no way of knowing if you will do a chargeback on this. Yeah. If you come up to us with a, with a credit card, a merchant has no way of knowing that you will do a chargeback. Yeah. Like the U.S. law, Regulation E, makes it extremely easy for you to pick up the phone and say, hey, bank, I didn't do this charge, yeah. even though you have the product in your hands. Yeah. And the bank is like, oh, we want you to be a satisfied customer. Here's the money back. The customer thinks the bank gave the money back, so they stole the money from the bank. Yeah. And they feel good about it because everyone hates banks. But what's happening is the bank charges the merchant. Yeah. The merchant has lost those $10 that you spent plus a $20 fee yeah. right, for every chargeback. Um, why would a merchant subject themselves to this? Yeah. Right? If enough people are using Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and you know, other currencies, why would someone expose themselves to the risk of getting a chargeback 180 yeah. days after the sale? Yeah, that's a right? huge risk to take as a merchant. Right. As a merchant, we love you know, Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and most of our volume now comes from Bitcoin because... We, we clamp down on, on PayPal and, and card users so much that people come up to us and say, hey, can I pay, pay with PayPal? Yeah. Like we have no way of verifying whether, you know, you don't have an established history yet at our company. So why don't you go and buy Bitcoin from Bitstamp or Gemini? Yeah. And uh, then... Then come to us. You know, you know, then come to us. And once they start using it, they realize how powerful it is because all of a sudden they don't need to ask anyone for permission. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a great feeling for a consumer. Um, and I would argue there are not enough places online to spend Bitcoin because merchants are scared about the volatility in prices. 
They don't need to be because there are third parties that can handle the risk for them. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, so obviously, there's like uh, you're helping with the adoption of Bitcoin. Uh, you're also helping with the adoption of other currencies, and you see see it go up. I remember you telling me that you're very particular about the different currencies that you allow on Block.io. So tell us about that. How do you choose which projects are legitimate versus not, and what to allow? Because in particular for new investors, it's really important for them to learn that as well. Right. So with um, so when you go to uh, you know someone comes up to you and says. You know, here's this thing called Bitcoin, yeah. and it's going to be great. It's going to take over the financial world, and blah blah blah. And you're like, oh, it's it's okay. So it's worth twenty thousand dollars. I yeah. don't have twenty thousand dollars. Well, the first hurdle is getting them to know that there are decimal places, there are fractional yeah. pieces of of a single Bitcoin that you can buy. Now, the second thing that they see is they go to a company like Coinbase, which lists, you know, um, other currencies or other networks and uh, they go up to it and say hey there's Litecoin mm. which is worth a hundred bucks so here's something that's worth twenty thousand dollars and here's something that's worth a hundred dollars and they they work the same way so why would I buy the twenty thousand dollar thing yeah right why not just buy the hundred hundred dollar thing and wait for it to go up yeah. Because I could get bigger returns on this. Well, it turns out these coins are not created equal. Like the, 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 the technology that powers Bitcoin, or people tend to refer to it as just the, the blockchain, it's not, you know, the, 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 the blockchain that is powering Bitcoin, um, the ledger is not as secure as, you know, it, it's more secure than the one that is powering Litecoin. Okay. The one that's powering Litecoin is more, is more secure than one that's powering um, some Litecoin other fe feather coin. Yeah. yeah, some other. Um, they're not all created equal. So when you, when, you, when you transact on the Bitcoin network, um, you are getting the highest security currently possible for an online currency that you can control. Um, with Ethereum, you're getting something less than, you know, good security. Um, but that network is not directly comparable to, to Bitcoin because it operates on very different parameters, very different philosophy. Um, it, we, with... Uh, um, with Bitcoin, the uh, network the size of Bitcoin, uh, the way it is secured is every 10 minutes, a lot of people have to compete to solve a math problem. Yeah. So, so every 10 minutes, they, they confirm a bucket of, of, of transactions. That bucket of transactions um, is, you know, it, it has some fees inside those transactions, and those fees are awarded as a reward to the person that solves the problem. Yeah. So every 10 minutes, someone has to do the work to verify your transactions. If enough people are competing yeah. to do the work, um, then the network is considered 
more secure than if just one person was doing it. Okay. Right. If the one person, if one person had more capacity, it was smarter than everyone else. Yeah. Like had more computation power than everyone else, and they could solve all the problems, then they would be in a position to solve. Um, if if they were a dishonest person, yeah. That they could go back in time and solve all the problems from. You know, some earlier day, yeah. and render all the other uh, solutions that other people have done since that time useless. And this is kind of complicated because you know that's. And so, so I, one solution, for example, you mean is if I send Bitcoin to you, right. uh, the solution that's recorded is that uh, you have now the Bitcoin that I used to have. But by saying someone can reverse that solution right. or change it, yeah. uh, someone can take money back from people as well. Right. Yeah. So, in in Bitcoin, if you have um, in Bitcoin, we talk about computation power because you know the number of hashes per second is how we how we estimate how smart someone is right. to solve a problem. If someone is smarter than 49% of the network, then they have 51% of the power on the network, which means every 10 minutes, there is a 51% probability that they will solve the next problem. And this could chain for quite a while, yeah. uh, potentially. Um, so if they are able to solve enough problems back to back, then they can reverse, you know, other people's solutions, uh, meaning uh, they could do malicious things like send their money to an exchange, have the exchange accept the money, mm. and then reverse the solutions okay. that they've done before, right? So, and then they get the money back through the blockchain. Now, the exchange thinks the money is there, but these guys just reversed all the solutions yeah. over, the, over the last few blocks. And now the exchange doesn't have anything, but it believes it has something, and they are able to trade and withdraw to Litecoin or Bitcoin or yeah. something else. So you don't want your network to be weak. And then if, uh, if someone does that, and I think you, you refer to it as a 51% attack. Right, this is called a 51% attack, and that is happening right now. Over the last few weeks, it has happened to two networks. Okay. Um, one of them was, um, I, I forget the... The uh, one of them was a fork of Bitcoin called Bitcoin Gold. Okay. Um, and uh, a fifty-one percent attack. With that fifty-one percent attack, people were able to steal millions of dollars from uh, exchanges that were like, you know, treating it kind of similar to the security that Bitcoin offers. Right. And it turns out that it's not equal. And then a few weeks later, it was followed up on another. Uh, um, uh, network uh, for some other exchange that was treating it as a secure currency like Bitcoin. Yeah. But it was not. It was a very small thing. Anyone, you know, anyone with half a brain could become more powerful than 51% of the people on that yeah. network. Now that's a really powerful insight for, for, for people who are listening to this because um, I think a lot of people who, when they go and buy these different coins, they look, at, um, they look at the features, they look at the team, but they often don't even think about the security aspect or what's the risk that someone can uh, take away the money and is this as secure as Bitcoin or not? 
and so it's really important for people to understand from you that not as you were saying not all coins are created equal yeah yeah it's um when you go up to coinbase or bitstamp or gemini or something else uh, there's a reason the price of bitcoin is as high as it is and it has been sustainably higher than everyone else um, the price of litecoin it has sustained itself over time the network has sustained itself over time the reason is not that you know the the reason is that it's it's different from yeah. from uh, most other coins out there the price for feather coin is non existent yeah. almost um because the network is just not enough people have trust in the network so why would they price it as something different the price is the easiest way to look at um the worth of a network in okay. in people's minds but don't get fooled by short term spikes in prices look at the history of the network right. look at the philosophy behind you know why it was created right and if it is not security focused if it is not user focused if someone is dictating the policy for the network yeah it's not worth it right now that's that's really helpful advice um and you obviously are like an expert in this space you have a phd uh and you have the ability to analyze this what what advice would you give to uh like a normal consumer who doesn't know a lot about computer science but wants to get exposure and start you know using bitcoin or these cryptocurrencies how should they get started uh how should they analyze this space um for someone who doesn't have exposure to bitcoin i would tell them to to go and transact in bitcoin just buy something go to overstock.com buy a couple of towels okay. and then see how it works and if you want to be the cutting edge new consumer then go to a vpn store and buy uh a vpn subscription over the lightning network mm. of bitcoin that's like level 2 um of of consumerism right now and once you do that i assure you you will be intrigued enough to learn more about about how this works and just keep in mind that when you transact no one else could have done that right unless they had access to your devices maybe yeah so combine those three things and you have a very powerful rocket ship to get on and and just start learning more about bitcoin it starts from there it yeah. always does yeah that's awesome so atif uh what uh, currencies do you currently have on block.io and do you have uh, any plans to add more in the future yes yeah, so block.io so personally speaking uh when i started uh developing uh block.io i noticed that the bitcoin community was was very strict with you know not letting new people in if they didn't trust them because a lot of it has to do third party services when you're offering them you need to be trustable yeah uh you need to be trustworthy in terms of of the the people in the, in any given community the one community that was willing to accept people who who built on its network was dogecoin and that's how it started it's a very friendly community yeah. amazing people uh and you can do wrong and then you can fix it like it's it's a very trusting 
you know, very open, very friendly community. So that gave me the 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 love I needed yeah. to to nurture, you know, uh, the 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 time and commitment needed for creating something like Block.io. So after Dogecoin, I added Bitcoin and Litecoin. Um, and uh, these were pretty much the most popular currencies at that time mm. uh, in 2013. Um, now we're looking at uh, adding uh, Zcash, uh, Dash, and Ethereum and all of its tokens um, later on this year. And the reason we're doing that is because we see the usage of these coins. Like they've had enough of um, a proven track record over the last few years, like at least two years, um, with enough safeguards in place, we believe we can drive their adoption further. Ethereum already has its adoption, yeah. uh, ICOs and tokens creation and all that. So it would be great to have our users, uh, have our developers get the same simple interfaces that they get with Block.io for, for Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Dogecoin, and extend that to other networks that we believe are feasible. Right. And we believe they're feasible because they are secured by enough computation power, at least for now, yeah. that we believe people won't get hurt when, when they start using these. And that's the biggest criteria we have for some, adding something to, to Block.io. We don't want to just add you know, anything that, that pops up under the sky because it, it could be here today, it could be gone tomorrow, yeah. then, but you have to keep it on Block.io forever after that yeah. because someone out there has 0 0.0001 coin yeah. in that network, so we can't remove it all of a sudden. So you got to be selective uh, about the people we let into our home. Yeah, no, and that's, that's also like a really great way for new investors to figure out what they should get invested on because if if you've done the due diligence and considered someone worthy to be included on block.io uh, and and it, offer them to your developer partners then that's presumably a safer uh, bet than some of these other coins as well right the key word is bet mm. so a lot of people in this space want to get rich yeah. you know especially when uh when bitcoin the the price goes up you get all of these new people coming into uh, Bitcoin, which is great, but they're coming into it from the angle of making money. And they're like, oh, I missed the boat on Bitcoin because it's $20,000 right now. How about I go buy Feathercoin for 0 0.0001? Or why don't I go and buy Ripple for you know whatever the price is? Yeah. And they, they are basically gambling. Yeah. Um, their way to oblivion when they go after coins that can't really be trusted, don't really have a track record. Someone is dictating the policies. A central entity is, is doing everything on the network. Not enough developers are using it. Um, so whenever someone joins the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency community, the first thing to look at is the philosophy behind why the coin was created and who is dictating that policy. If no one is dictating that policy, that's a great way to go. 
Right. Currently, I think that's only Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's why it's a great way to go. Great. So that's uh, that's some awesome advice to end on. Arthur, thank you so much for your time. We learned a lot of really important and powerful things. Uh, and I'm sure the viewers uh, found it really amazing as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me.